You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 510 of this podcast. Today is Sunday, December 4th, 2022. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about things that are just not cool anymore. Just not cool. They might have been once upon a time, but no more. No mas. No mas with the being cool. And among them may just be the 1990s. So I was explaining to my sons just yesterday on our way home from helping the Cross family to move from their downstairs unit of the house that they are renting to the upstairs unit of that same house. And somehow or another, the topic of what was that really cool song? Yeah, you know, they asked me the question, what was that cool song that you were telling us about the other day? you know, from when you were growing up, what was that song again? And I was like, oh, I mean, maybe it wasn't the most popular song in the 90s, but it was on the radio quite a lot. As I recall, The Sign by Ace of Base. And I will always remember driving around Kalispell, Montana, not me personally driving around, but, you know, being in the car, let's say, as my parents were driving around, and it being the summertime and us going over to Hostess and buying some of the snacks from the Hostess store and uh, and Ace of Bass being on the radio. The Sign or Don't Turn Around, those both, for some reason, I thought they were very cool. I assume everybody else felt the same. But now looking back on the 90s, the 90s were not maybe as cool as we thought they were in the moment. And the funny thing is that actually, as a 90s kid, I looked back on the 80s and I thought, man, that was so tacky. Like, why would anybody dress that way or have their hair that way or listen to that music or just, ah, man, there's just so much lameness about the 80s. Look at us now. Now, what is typical or fashionable from the 1980s? Music, movies, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. People are like, man, the '80s were so cool. It's like, ah, really? Were they? Were they though? I don't think they were actually that cool. But give it another ten years, the '90s will be right there. And the folks who get those uh, nostalgic feelings, they will have had enough time to forget what the '90s were really like, so that they can pitch them as the uh, good old days. I think that's. I think that's how that works. You just have to give these events and these uh, periods enough distance <laughs> that you can mythologize them and say they were maybe better than they actually were. But in other news, some maybe levity, uh, given the rest of what we're going to be talking about, I'm going to play a little clip from Parks and Recreation that I wonder sometimes uh, if it isn't how People hear folks like me when we start talking about America being a country governed according to Christian principles. We'll put it that way. If you want to call it Christian nationalism, you go right ahead. Uh, I'm not going to argue about that. If that's a pejorative, 
I don't see the point in disputing that I'm a Christian on the one hand or that I am for nationalism. I am not a globalist and I see those as our options. You're either a nationalist or you're a globalist. I am not a globalist. I think globalism is bad. I think it's uh, a large part of what's wrong with the world these days. I am a nationalist. I am in favor of national self-interest and I'm also a Christian. And so I think our nationalism must conform to the pattern that God sets out in his world for success, for right and wrong, for justice, for truth to win out. I think we have to abide by what God says or what God set it up like. And I don't believe that there is an option for us to say, oh, well, this is secular. Therefore, we get to make our own rules. We get to create our own reality. I think a lot of what's broken these days in relationships and institutions and families and our government and <laughs> everything else has to do with us thinking we can we can create our own reality and that that's how it goes. We can affect our reality. Sure, we can make choices. We can make good decisions. We can make bad decisions. But reality is reality. We exist within it. God is the one who makes our reality and sets it up and sets it in motion and then he also makes us with the ability to make the most of the part of reality that he has put us into and he sustains us in. But I think when I start talking about Christians legislating, uh, sure, yeah, let's legislate morality. By all means, it doesn't mean we have to legislate everything that is good to do. You must do everything that we think is good to do in some circumstances. It doesn't mean we have to legislate to the point that everything that I would say is unwise or bad to do. We have to make a law about that. No, no. But what laws there are requiring behavior, we're not going to ask you to do evil, corrupt things, right? That's what I'm really getting at. If we're going to compel you to do something, we're not going to compel you to do something bad or corrupt or wicked. That's what I mean. Or on the flip side, if we're going to prohibit you from doing things, we are not going to prohibit you from doing good things. We're not going to punish and penalize you for doing good things. We're not going to disincentivize doing what's right, and we're not going to incentivize doing what's wrong. That's the essence of the Christian philosophy of good government, rewarding those who do good, punishing those who do evil. But I think what people actually hear, whether I'm saying it or not, and I don't think I am, I think what they actually hear is something like this. Now imagine you're holding coffee. This is outrageous. Where are the armed men who come in to take the protesters away? Where are they? This kind of behavior is never tolerating in Boracua. You shout like that, they, they put you in jail right away. No trial, no, no nothing. Journalists, we have a special jail for journalists. You're stealing, right to jail. You're playing music too loud, right to jail, right away. You're driving too fast, jail. Slow, jail. You're charging too high prices for uh, sweaters glasses you write to jail you undercook fish believe it or not jail you overcook chicken also jail undercook overcook you make an appointment with a dentist and you don't show up believe it or not jail right away we have the best patients in the world because of jail so no that's no stop 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 not that's not what i'm about that's not what i'm about i don't think that we should be sending everybody to jail if they do just minorly annoying things to where you just criminalize all behavior. You know, there's a funny thing. There's an anecdote in the lives of the noble Greeks and Romans by Plutarch. 
there's a story of a certain very, very hard-nosed ruler by the name of Draco. So Draco, he is where we get the term draconian from. Draco was a lawgiver, also known as Dracon. He was the first recorded legislator of Athens in ancient Greece. And according to Wikipedia, he replaced the prevailing system of oral law and blood feud by the draconian constitution, a written code to be enforced only by a court of law. So I guess there's, you know, there's some good stuff, right? You're putting a little more structure in and, uh, you know, we're not just going to hash this out in a chaotic way. Um, The problem was, the problem with Draco and why we call, you know, excessively severe punishments draconian is that he basically had a prescription of the death penalty for everything. And and there's this little... uh, there's this little blurb here from Plutarch. It is said that Dracon himself, when asked why he had fixed the punishment of death for most offenses, answered that he considered these lesser crimes to deserve it, and he had no greater punishment for more important ones. So essentially, it was like, you deserve death for most things, and even with the more severe crimes, uh, you know, there's I don't have anything worse than death, so you just still get death, right? And and so that also too that that is not what I am for. I as a so-called Christian nationalist, uh, I've been told that that might be what I am defined by the secularists and the leftists to be. I am not for the death penalty for everything, and I am also not for just carting people off to jail for even minor infractions. So you you overcook fish, jail. <laughs> you undercook chicken, also jail. <laughs> You know, like that's not what I'm for. But what I am for is what I am for is that we are not punishing good behavior and we are not rewarding bad behavior. We're not incentivizing or commanding that people engage in bad, corrupt uh, actions that offend God. And at the same time, that we're not prohibiting them from engaging in good behavior, good actions that please God or that God has commanded or that God has said he will bless. So this all brings us to something that's on the way to our uh, main topic, which is you know, how we are cultivating young minds. If we've got youth in the church, how do we steward the opportunity to teach them the principles of God's word? How do we steward well the opportunity to show Christ to them, to model the love of Christ that's been extended to us and which by reason of we now are able to love how do we do that how, how do we make the most of this opportunity before we get to that i think in some sense we have to grapple with how we are managing affairs because we can say all we want to young people at the end of the day it is a very very bad look if the tone and tenor of our actions our behavior versus our statements, our assertions is do as I say, not as I do. It's a very bad look. And that is not good stewardship of the opportunity that we have to cultivate young minds, especially in our families, especially in our homes, especially in our churches. So one of the things I think we have to reckon with towards the end of having integrity, having a good testimony with our children, teaching them right from wrong, setting a good example for them, 
I think we have to figure out what to make of this whole business with the Twitter files and and the Hunter Biden laptop files. Uh, James Woods, for instance, here's an example of something we might do or consider doing. James Woods, actor, award-winning, conservative, responds to the Twitter files in interview. I'm suing the DNC. I'm coming for you, Biden. This is Daily Wire News, a report that they put out yesterday, highlighting some back and forth discussion that James Woods had with Tucker Carlson. And I want you to take a listen to just a little bit of this, just a little bit of this, because something he says here is worth keying in on, even if you're not James Woods, even if you don't feel like you're as conservative or as concerned about what the Democrats are up to, what they've been up to, what they're doing with our government, with our country, around the world in the name of our government and our country, and we as Americans. I want you to take a listen to his framing of the reason for a lawsuit. Just minutes ago, Elon Musk wrote on Twitter, quote, if this isn't a violation of the Constitution's First Amendment, what is? There's so much here. Other documents just posted by TV minutes ago reveal that Twitter's hacked materials policies was never a real justification for banning the New York Post reporting on Hunter Biden's laptop. And they knew it. Under Twitter's own stated rules, they would need, quote, official law enforcement finding of a hack to invoke that policy, says Taibbi. This is just one part of the Twitter files that are apparently going to come out over a period of days. We will see. But one of the things we've learned already is that Twitter, under pressure from Democrats, deleted a tweet from the legendary actor James Woods, who had straight outside the lines by criticizing Hunter Biden. The DNC told, this before the last election, told Twitter to take it down, and so they did. James Woods joins us now by phone. James Woods, are you there? Yes, I am, Tucker. So nice to talk to you. It's great to talk to you. I vaguely remember when your tweet was pulled down. You, of course, remember it. Did you suspect at the time it was pulled down at the direct request of the Democratic National Committee? I'm not surprised at all. I'm shocked uh, the way any other American would be if he were a target of a presidential candidate and a yeah. major political party. But here's why I'm not shocked, Twitter. You may, uh, uh, you may be surprised to know that there was a lawsuit a while back. Uh, a woman uh, accused me of saying that she gave a Nazi salute, and there was a whole bunch of, of stuff about it on Twitter, and, and I didn't. I actually asked, why would somebody say that about her? Without going into the details of that lawsuit, it turned out that the DNC was behind that. I won the lawsuit in federal court. It wasn't reported very much. I've been a target of these people for six years. They have destroyed my career. They have destroyed my livelihood. They've destroyed my faith in a country that my family has defended uh, in the military since the Revolutionary War. I'm about to be inducted into the Sons uh, of the uh, American Revolution, the Sons of the Revolution. Um, uh, I, I cannot I, – I, you're catching me a bit off guard because I literally just walked in the door – and my wife yeah. said, have you seen your phone? I was at the firing range, believe it or not, practicing Good for, for you. Uh, my rights under the Second Amendment, which I guess now that I don't have any First Amendment rights anymore, I'm glad that I still have some Second Amendment rights. I, I yeah. think the whole thing is uh, astonishing. I, I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm for the first time in my life, honestly, speechless. 
And that really is that that right there. That is a apt turn of phrase. I I really am speechless. Well, you know, if <laughs> at any point where you start to get influential and you might say something that is critical of a political party at a national level, and the, that political party plus uh, federal law enforcement might contact big tech, which is essentially the public square these days, and tell them to censor you, to remove your tweets, to remove your posts, to flag them, to suppress them, to shadow ban you, to suspend your account, and you will be taken offline, well then you you are speechless. That is an infringement, a fundamental infringement of your First Amendment rights. And this really gets at what a lot of libertarians and small government types were saying to me personally for years. I have lots of friends and family who are libertarians. They would say when I would complain about Facebook and Twitter censorship in particular or Google censorship in particular, they would say, well, these are private companies and it is the path to the dark side if we start telling them what they can and cannot censor or suppress. If you don't like it, go start your own. Go make your own company. Go join one of these other companies or these other social media platforms. You know, Go do something elsewhere and compete. That's what we're for with the free market and everything else. And what I tried to convey was, actually, wait a second. No, this is not a private company. If they are doing the bidding of the government and if they're doing the bidding of uh, a political party, one political party in particular, the Democratic Party, Edward Snowden several years ago came out with revelations. He had to leave the country lest he be arrested and imprisoned or else uh, suicided. He came out with a lot of evidence and a lot of very disturbing revelations, which if we shrugged that, if we said, oh, yeah, well, I guess that's just that's just what it is now, we didn't know the full extent that it wasn't just backdoors, it wasn't just surveillance, it was also active interference in the free speech of private citizens, like, for instance, James Woods. And here's the trouble, here's the problem, is that when only the people who are going to be supportive of Democrat policies are allowed to be public and their ideas are the only ones that are allowed to uh, get posted or published or aired or broadcast online without being flagged or stigmatized or gaslit or taken down or shadow banned or what have you. It guarantees that the only famous people you will know the opinions of are Democrats and progressives. The only legitimate viewpoints as you see it, if you're not doing your own research and studying and reading and thinking deeply, the only legitimate viewpoints you will perceive will be those of the left. So what this does is it changes where the Overton window falls with regards to every issue that the Democrats care about, every issue that the left in this country cares about. It also it, it guarantees that competition will not get off the ground in the first place. And it also guarantees that accountability for corruption in our government will not be brought to the public's attention at critical junctures, just like the 2020 election. The 2020 election could have been a referendum on corruption in our government. But if that same government is so corrupt, if the Democrat Party is so corrupt that it's willing to tell Twitter and Facebook and Google Here's what to let through. Here's what to censor based on what is going to bring accountability or is not going to bring accountability. 
well then essentially an end run has been done around the whole checks and balances system as far as citizenry and the government. And then you get to a private citizen, an individual citizen like James Woods, who says, I'm not going to take this. You damaged my reputation. You hurt my brand. You essentially, and he says this later in the interview, you essentially made it impossible for me to get work because everybody blacklisted, not just me, but also anybody who followed me couldn't get a job in Hollywood. They couldn't get an acting job in a way that allowed them to continue being a celebrity. All because I was outspoken on social media and social media leveraged its power and its the you know tools at, at its disposal to make me look like a crazy person or a fringe personality or somebody with a crazy personality or somebody with a deranged personality. They they attacked my personhood and they, you know, and I'm I'm extending out what he actually does say here, but but I, I you know, I I take what he's saying here to actually literally mean you're, you're speechless because you're only allowed to say what someone else wants you to say. And, you know, it's, it's just like selective editing of a speech. You know, if I took a speech and I selectively edited it and I cropped context, you know, dialogue from some famous person to where it sounded like they said this really offensive thing right after or right before this other, you know, questionable thing. But there was context in between that would have given you a totally different impression. Well, now I've just, in in some sense, uh, slandered them. I have misrepresented them. If I'm doing that intentionally to deceive you or to keep you from knowing the truth about them or to give you a bad impression of them, I've done real harm to them and to you, and I've done harm to my own soul. And so, again, what do we do with the Twitter files? What do we do with the Hunter Biden laptop scandal and increasing evidence that's being released per Elon Musk, God bless him and preserve him, that our own government and the Democratic Party was contacting Twitter and telling Twitter, take this down because it's damaging to our brand or it's damaging to our election chances. What are we going to do about that? What do we have to say about that? What can be done about that? Before we get into more on the Twitter files, I want to take a small segue actually to, um, you know, you might say fact check James Woods a little bit here. I like James Woods uh, from what I've seen and what I've heard. I, I'm i sure that I agree with a lot of his viewpoints and uh, his attitude, uh, maybe not everything, but he did say something in this Tucker Carlson interview that is not quite correct. And maybe it was a slip of the tongue, but uh, he says at one point that these guys who were signing the Declaration of Independence were teenagers, and we think that they were these old white guys who were just you know rich and slave owners, and we should just write them all off. Which is you know it it's funny in conjunction with another thing that is all of a sudden you know very very concerning that uh, President Trump, former President Trump, has said uh, in relation to the Twitter files being released, but. James Woods says John Adams was 19 when the Declaration of Independence was signed. I think it was a slip of the tongue. I don't think he actually meant to say that. Uh, He did have another character he was referring to, James Monroe, who was 19 when the Declaration of Independence was signed. 
But I actually, I looked it up because I was like, man, I, that doesn't seem quite right. I don't, I don't think that's the kind of thing that, you know, we can just gloss over. If, if James Woods is right, well, then that is a, actually a very interesting thing. But if he's wrong, then we want to correct this as soon as possible. Uh, John Adams, for his part, born in 1735, was actually 40. He was, he was 40 years old, born in Quincy, Massachusetts, also state rep for Massachusetts, lawyer, married once, had five kids. He was 40 years old when the Declaration of Independence was signed. Uh, Interestingly, too, if I read down through the list of other signatories here, we come across Sam Adams, who was 53, Josiah Bartlett, who was 46, Carter Braxton, 39, uh, Charles Carroll of Carrollton, 38, Samuel Chase, 35, Abraham Clark, 50, George Clymer, 37, William Ellery, 48, William Floyd, 41, Ben Franklin, the oldest, he was the elder statesman, present, scientist and printer. He was 70 years old. Elbridge, Jerry, 32, Button Gwinnett, 41, Lyman Hall, 52, John Hancock, the esteemed with the big signature, so that King George couldn't miss it. He was 40. Benjamin Harrison, 50. John Hart, 65. Not too much younger than Ben Franklin. Joseph Hughes, 46. Thomas Hayward Jr., 30. William Hooper, 34. Stephen Hopkins, also very close to Ben Franklin's age, at 69. Francis Hopkins, 38. Samuel Huntington, 45. Thomas Jefferson, 33. You know, Thomas Jefferson was actually three years younger than I am right now, when he drafted, uh, he and John Adams and Ben Franklin helped put together the Declaration of Independence, but kind of a big deal. Now, a lot of these guys, uh, not not necessarily teenagers, um, that, that's not correct, uh, but actually a lot of them were in their 30s and a lot of them were in their 40s. A lot of them would be considered quite young by today's standards, where we have a lot of people of advanced age who have been in the government longer than these men, the founding fathers, had been alive, period, when they declared independence independence from uh, Britain. But also, too, another, another curious thing. Uh, there's this table uh, of signers of the Declaration of Independence at the National Archives website, archives.gov. And it shows not just their occupation or their age in 1776, birthplace, date of birth, state they were representing. It also shows number of marriages and number of children. I thought that was really fascinating. A lot of these guys were married twice. And that's probably, if I had to guess, in almost all cases, that their first wife uh, died in childbirth or passed away. It's it's almost certainly that most of these guys, if they were married more than once, it's because their first wife passed away. And for that matter, if they were married only once, um, they probably passed away uh, at a you know reasonably young age. You know, number of marriages one or two. I don't see three, four plus one or two or none. And not very many of these guys were unmarried. Almost all of them 
were married. Caesar Rodney, never married, zero marriages. That's curious. Uh, Joseph Hughes, we don't know, I guess, because it's just a dash, like unknown. I guess it doesn't really matter all too, too much. But most of these guys married once at most twice. And that's almost assuredly because their first wife passed away, maybe in childbirth or maybe due to illness. Number of children, also very interesting. <laughs> From the top here, I'm just going to read the number of children. Uh, it's known the number of children that these guys had in all cases, except for, again, just the one character, Joseph Hughes, who we don't know, apparently. We don't know how many kids he had or how many times he was married. He passed away actually just three years later, three years after this uh, signing of the declaration at the age of 49. So didn't live to be too terribly old. But from the top here, number of children, 5, 2, 12, 18, 7, 4, 10, 8, 16, 3, 3, 7, 3, 1, 2, 7, 13. Unknown, as I said, in the case of Joseph Hughes. Then 8, 3, 7, 5, 2, 6. There's one zero, six, seven, nine, another zero, 11, 9, 10, 7, 8, 13, 5, 8, 3, 5, another zero. Not very many zeros. This one, uh, Caesar Rodney, who also never married. The only one on the list that it's for sure never married. 13, 3, 15, 5, 6, 3, 2, 5, 2, 0, another 0, not very many, 3, 7, 12, 4, and 1. So a lot of these guys, a lot of these guys who were the signers of the Declaration of Independence, the founding fathers of the United States of America, had good-sized families. Some of these guys had more kids than I do. Uh, not a lot of them, but 12, 18, 10, 16, 13, 11, 10, 13, 13, 15, 12. So these are fathers with big families who most of them, actually not all that much older or younger than I am, very close to my age, founding the United States of America out of 13 colonies. I think that's really, really interesting. Not teenagers, but these are very, very different men than our country produces by and large in the mainstay today. And that is regrettable. That is regrettable. As much as we may look down on this generation for not having settled the question of slavery, there are other virtues besides that we lack that these men had in ready abundance, which I think if they were to look at where we're at these days, they probably would have some stern words for us as well. It's not just that we have some finger wagging for their generation. They also too, I think, would wag the finger at us and uh, not for no reason, not without reason. Going back to the Twitter business though, I'm going to play a clip from Fox News. This one highlighted by Ken Meyer about a, oh, how many hours ago at this point? Uh, it looks like eight, right? So this is fresh from this morning over at Mediaite. And this is Fox News. Will Kane tells Hunter Biden repair shop owner, flat out, there's no smoking gun in Elon Musk's Twitter files. This is a really, really interesting short clip of said repair shop owner explaining 
<laughs> why uh, the evidence of lack may not be a lack of evidence here and what we should actually expect uh, with regards to this story and Twitter and the FBI. Take a listen. I'd love, if, if you guys will forgive me, I'd love to ask you two quick questions, uh, John Paul. One, there, as, as much as we have seen from what Elon has released about the coordination between the government and Twitter, there isn't necessarily a smoking gun yet when it comes to your case, Hunter Biden. In other words, we don't have the, the, the government official saying, spike that. Do you think that probably exists? Do you expect that somewhere and is yet to be seen? We haven't, we see a Twitter that's ready and willing to do what the government wants, or in this case, the DNC. There's actually the DNC at this time, so the Democratic Party. But we haven't yet seen who made the call and who made the, who put it in their mind. Well, I believe Zuckerberg described at least the FBI and Facebook's interaction as predominantly in person or over the phone. Right. I think the FBI is smart enough not to create a paper trail when it comes to affecting the course of an election. So I'm pretty sure the FBI was careful about how they communicated. I'm, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, we do have acknowledgement from Facebook. Uh, even Zuckerberg back in October 28th of 2020 told Congress when they got when Zuckerberg and YouTube and Google got dragged uh, in front of Congress to explain Section 230 immunity, uh, they said that it was common practice for law enforcement to reach out to social media. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm not surprised that there's not a paper trail. I, I hope that the FBI is smart enough not to implicate them in something like that, but um, really I, I wouldn't point. be surprised. You know, the FBI knew it wasn't Russian. They knew it was Russian when I told them they came to my home, they finally came to the shop, they took the laptop, they did not admit the laptop as evidence in the impeachment trial. That's when I knew the FBI was bent. So Some really great points there. Some really great points there. Yeah, the, the FBI is smart enough to know you don't want a paper trail. You're not necessarily going to be, oh, I don't know, writing it down on a piece of paper with the FBI's uh, official seal at the top and a signature. And you're not going to be broadcasting that for one thing, like, hey, world, guess what? We at the FBI who are in the bag for Democrats and for Joe Biden, we are pressuring social media to censor this story that would be damaging to our favorite candidate and our favorite, uh, you know, government moving forward, our, our favorite election outcome. You're also similarly not going to have Twitter executives who are on the inside making these determinations to go ahead and censor the Hunter laptop story advertising. That's why we are only just now finding out about this, uh, you know, the behind the scenes conversations with Elon Musk having paid over $40 billion to buy Twitter and then making the determination that, yes, this is in the interest of restoring the credibility and the brand and the trustworthiness of Twitter as a company, this needs to be known, right? Here you go, reporter. Here you go, journalist. Please do your thing. Report. <laughs> Report on it. That's why this is being uh, brought to the fore. Also, by the way, a quick thought, uh, Elon Musk, very concerned that he might be, uh, I don't know, dead as a result of these things coming out. Maybe he's joking. Maybe it's in jest. I don't think so. But he just said this morning that if he commits suicide, it wasn't him. So in other words, he's not suicidal. He has no intentions of taking his life. That is 
perhaps in jest, also perhaps not a joke, that, uh, you know, he, um, he might legitimately wonder if he will be murdered. Uh, that's what you call it. It's not an execution. There's been no crime committed. He's not breaking the law for these things to be made public. But nevertheless, to stop him from saying anymore, revealing anymore, to shut him down, uh, yeah, would there be some people who would want to even up to and including uh, murder? Yes. Now, that's not a shocking uh, thing to suggest, I don't think. But he is coming out and he is saying, if I commit suicide, it wasn't me. I didn't kill myself. But another important character in all this, another person to consider, former President Donald Trump. Some reporting from Not To Be. Not To Be staff put out a post uh, earlier today, actually. Trump calls for termination of Constitution so he can be reinstalled as president. I don't know if that's quite what he said, but he, you know, it's one of the options that he seems to be implying anyway. This is a post from Truth Social, his social media platform, and I quote, so with the revelation of massive and widespread fraud and deception in working closely with big tech companies, the DNC and the Democrat Party, do you throw the presidential election results of 2020 out and declare the rightful winner? Or do you have a new election? A massive fraud of this type and magnitude allows for the termination of all rules, regulations and articles, even those found in the Constitution. Our great founders did not want and would not condone false and fraudulent elections. That's a post of his from yesterday morning, about 7.44 a.m. And uh, that's quite the position to take. That's quite the thing to say. What do we do with that? I can't pretend to know. But <laughs> um, let's do consider this, that our government, that Democrats in our government in particular, that corrupt government officials, some elected, some unelected, told big tech to basically deprive to the best of your of their abilities to the full extent of their capabilities private american citizens and journalists even of their constitutional rights without due process without transparency without charges being filed without uh their day in court without due process without cause except ambition, accept the will to power, accept a desire to hold on to the government or to expand control once again over the government. What is the basis for our form of government if the constitution has been entirely subverted and individual citizens and even journalistic institutions have had their free speech rights systematically and for years violated without due process, at the behest of people in our government. Where do we go with that? Where do we go with that? My sons were just asking me this question last night. Well, you know, what happens? You know, do, do people get arrested who are in our government? If so, who's going to arrest them? Do they stand trial? Do they go to prison? Do they, what, what happens? If they're the ones who are going to make that determination, and if it's up to them, well, they're going to say no, right? They're going to say, nope, that's not happening. Is the Constitution actually being upheld by these men and women who swore to uphold the Constitution? 
if they are subverting the Constitution by their actions, if they're encouraging others who maybe do work for private corporations to assist them to facilitate their subversion of the Constitution? Those are very, very big, important questions. And we can pray that there is a just and righteous outcome. We can pray that there is a resolution here that is peaceful, but time will tell. Time will tell. We know that God ultimately will bring a righteous government in with the second coming of Christ. We know that, but we don't know what will happen to our country in the near future. We just don't. We don't know what's going to happen, what's going to be the end of this. It's a very concerning time. We don't need to be anxious for anything. In everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, we present our requests to God. And we trust. We trust that the peace of God will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. But also, too, with regards to this whole business, there's a piece by Ryan Saavedra at The Daily Wired from yesterday. Ex-Twitter executive Elon Musk is putting us in harm's way by showing how we censored content. Wow. Okay. Well, you know what? I'll bet, right? I'll bet. And the implication here is the or else. The or else is if, as some friends of mine have said, the system seems incapable of fixing itself or writing itself. If that is the case, well then, where do we go with this? Some people, yeah, they are going to conclude that the only solution is to try and take justice into their own hands. I would encourage you to read not just the vigilantes of Montana to get their side of the story, but I would also encourage you to check out the immortal Irishman about Thomas Francis Marr and his side of the story, if you will, regarding the vigilantes. Sometimes there are two sides to the story and vigilantes, that's not due process. What we want is due process and what we need is courage to do things in an orderly way that doesn't break things further to where we're not just saying, ah, we're going to repay evil for evil. No, no. We're told not to do that. If you want good godly principles to win the day, don't think that you can accomplish that by using corrupt means. And that needs to be <laughs> that needs to be the mantra uh, of the folks who have been using corrupt means within our government to try and bring about a utopian outcome. It also needs to be the mindset of those who are very concerned and disturbed by these things that we don't lose our way. Be careful in fighting monsters, Nietzsche once said, lest you become one. Be careful in fighting monsters, lest you yourself become one. Also, too, here is a, a little clip Ian Miles Chung, independent journalist, I do believe, uh, he recently shared as of yesterday, actually yesterday morning, 11.17 a.m. on Twitter, Joe Biden repeatedly denied the existence and legitimacy of Hunter Biden's laptop. There's an important thing to maybe revisit. How did he word this exactly and what was his claim? This is from his presidential debate with Trump, one of the presidential debates with Trump from a couple of years ago. Take a listen. 50 former national intelligence folks who said that what this he's accusing me of is a Russian plant. 
They have said that this is, has all the four, five former heads of the CIA, both parties, say what he's saying is a bunch of garbage. This is classic Trump. We have four days left, and all of a sudden there's a laptop. There's overwhelming evidence that from the intelligence community that the Russians are engaged. I still think that the stories from the fall about your son Hunter were Russian disinformation at a smear campaign, like you said. Yes, yes, yes. It's the last ditch effort in this desperate campaign to smear me and my family. The vast majority of the intelligence people have come out and said there's no basis at all. Yeah, but that's the that that's a, a dodgy way of not actually saying that this is uh, a fake laptop or that this is you know for sure baseless and you know, totally nothing. You're trying to imply it strongly. You're, you're pointing to the intelligence agencies and former heads of the CIA and FBI and all this. And you're saying, well, hey, they, you know, these guys, all these guys are saying that Russia's involved. Well, Russia might be involved. That doesn't mean that the laptop is fake. Is the laptop real or isn't it? You would know. Hunter Biden would know. Is it or isn't it? If it is real and you know that it's real and your son knows that it's real, well, then Russia can be involved, and that's a side issue, and let's deal with that in a second. But right now, we need to get to what's on the laptop, and does it reveal a lot of criminal activity and a lot of highly unethical activity, a lot of immoral activity within your family? If that damages your reputation, but it's real and it's true, and that actually is what happened, well, then that's not slander, and that's not election interference, and that's not fraudulent, and that's not untoward. It's not unfair for us to go there. Just like I was saying when we were talking about reputation in a recent episode and we were talking about normalcy in a recent episode, bearing false witness against your neighbor is not saying true things that are negative about your neighbor. See, if your neighbor actually is a murderer, to say, hey, he killed a guy is not slander. If he actually is a thief and you say, hey, this guy steals from people and he should be arrested for that and he should be put on <laughs> uh, you know uh, the schedule for the local court he, he should have charges filed he should be uh, brought to justice if you say that and he actually is a thief it's not slander so also with the hunter biden laptop business if it is fake well then it's fake and let's get to where it came from and let's deal with those people. If it's not fake, well, then that's really all there is to it, President Biden. If I may call you that, if it's even fair to call you that, because was it an election or was this just a sham? Speaking of elections and interference in social media and Twitter, more to the point, Elon Musk, Elon Musk, once again, Jesse James over at Not The Bee, Elon Musk says Twitter may have interfered in Brazil's presidential election. Elon Musk, and I quote, uh, his Twitter is simply must-see TV right now. He's dropping bombs left and right. Last night, fella tweeted this, and this is a guy named Avi Yamini. Hey, at Elon Musk, can you find out what other elections were handled by the former Twitter regime? Thank you, the rest of the world. <laughs> uh, this morning, Elon replied with this, and again, this was yesterday, so this was yesterday morning. I've seen a lot of concerning tweets about the recent Brazil election. If those tweets are accurate, it's possible that Twitter 
personnel gave preference to left-wing candidates. Now, there's a lot there's a lot that needs to be verified and validated. And uh, if there's evidence there, it needs to be brought forward. But if that's true, then you have not just a travesty here in the U.S. You also have global fraud being perpetrated. And then all of a sudden, it starts to click together that this is of a piece with the Great Reset globalism push, that this is actually part of the larger scam, that it doesn't matter if the peoples of the world want to have national self-determination. They want Brazil to be doing what is in the best interest of the Brazilian people. If you've got a democratic process in Brazil, the Brazilian people want to elect who they want to elect. But if you're doing the same thing here in the US, over in Brazil, if experiments were run, and I know that they were because I read about them years and years ago, to see if skewing Google search results could swing an election in, I believe it was India at the time, where they ran the experiment. If that has subverted the election process, well then, God bless Elon Musk and protect him because what he's up against is a world of megalomaniacs who do not want the game to be over. They don't want this game to be over. This is also a very important uh, motivation, I think, for me personally, to make sure that I'm doing my own research, to make sure that I'm not being taken in by impressions that are created. And don't just take, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, your consensus from what you're able to see on the surface of what other people are saying or what other people are showing or what other people are sharing, particularly online. It can be very easily manipulated. It has been very easily manipulated for years and years and years. That's why these things are free because you are actually the product. You are what's being bought and sold and traded. Your eyeballs, your clicks, your attention, and not just what you do see and what you do read and what you do hear, also what you don't. Very, very important that we recognize that. But all of that, all of that that we've talked about here with the Twitter business, I want to bring full circle and back to something I said we were going to touch on more in this episode yesterday, which is this funny, satirical, but also tragic <laughs> comedy uh, video, Ignatius, the Ultimate Youth Pastor. This is up on YouTube. It was sent to me by my neighbor, two houses down, J.P. Chavez. He and his wife, Monica, were telling our biblical training group about it on Friday night when we were talking about the names of God and what we call God and, you know, what do you prefer? Do you, do you call him God? Do you call him Father? Do you call him Lord? Do you call him Jesus? Or do, do you pray to Jesus? Do you typically pray to the Father? Or how do you pray how do you address God by name when you are praying? And I think it was Monica. She mentioned that she knew a gal who used to pray to God as daddy. She would call him daddy. And she had some issues or maybe some trauma that, uh, you know, that might have been partially related to. And in any event, her having mentioned that reminded her and JP, Monica and JP, of this video. Ignatius, the ultimate youth pastor. And so JP went home, looked it up, sent it to me, and I uh, watched it. I, I watched this video. And uh, I'll tell you what, I, I want to 
I want to actually bring this full circle to a issue that I see in having been a youth in youth group at one point in time, having helped with youth, uh, various places across the country, Ohio, Montana, here in Colorado, and having interacted with others who either administer youth programs or also volunteer in youth programs, various materials that are used or curriculum that is used or philosophies or mindsets or attitudes with regards to youth ministry. And also just in general, how we're raising children in the church. If we're Christians and we've got kids, if we're just interacting with kids, other people's kids at church, there's a lot here that I actually, it might shock you, but I'll explain. I actually think it does relate to the business with the Twitter files and the Hunter Biden laptop and uh, election interference. But here's a little bit more of that video and then we'll unpack it and I'll explain what I mean. My husband and I are taking our first real vacation in six years and I'm so excited. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love the students, but sometimes you just need a break, you know? So um, I'm really excited because Ignatius is going to cover my Wednesday nights for me. Ignatius is like the biggest name in student ministry. He's worked with the biggest speakers, biggest worship leaders. He's spoken to like a million kids. He's like the Michael Phelps of student ministry. I'm kind of old-fashioned, and I don't know much about him, but uh, he knows Becky, and he loves Jesus, and that's enough for me. So people ask me, Ignatius, what does it take to be a great youth pastor? Well, my answer is always the same. Xbox 360, a copy of Rock Band, book deal, and... Uh, there's something else. Um, yes, a moderately priced haircut. I get mine cut at Tony and Guy, uh, 70 bucks plus highlights. Our ministry's called Flame, and it's based on some verse in the Bible about fire. You know, we want to see our kids on fire for God. I mean, in the middle of this godless culture, we want to drive a stake in the heart of it. I mean, we want our kids burning at the stake. I believe that in the middle of this culture where sexual morals are out the window, and our kids are struggling with gender issues, God wants to raise up a generation of flamers. I want to see our students stand up in their classrooms, in their hallways, and unashamedly proclaim, I'm a flamer, and I'm proud. I take my preparation very seriously. I'll spend two or three hours doing something that's called prayer lattes. Prayer lattes is when, well, I get on an exercise ball, I'll have a latte, non-fat. It's like God's my trainer, and he's stretching my spiritual muscles, as well as my physical muscles. Wow, who are my influences? Bono, of course. C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia films. They were great. I, first two are killer. I hope he writes another one. Hi, I'm Kelly. Nice to meet you. Uh, this is Carl. He's on our volunteer staff. Hi. Becky told us so much about you. <laughs> All good, I hope. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about your group. Well, we had a lock-in last weekend, and six of our kids made a professional faith. But yeah, we, we had 60. Uh, we're probably going to meet about 20 minutes before the service starts so that we can pray. 20 minutes? You think it'll take that long? <laughs> and you probably want to spend some time with students. Why would I want to do that? I'll tell you one thing. If he gets up there and starts preaching I don't know what to these kids and messing with their brain, I won't have a problem going up there and dragging his behind off the stage and throwing it out the door. I don't care who he is. And that's just what he does. And that's, <laughs> you should watch the rest of it. That, that's like uh, the first three minutes 
but it <laughs> um, it gets better or worse depending on your perspective. That is actually exactly what the older youth volunteer uh, does. Is at a certain point, he just goes up on stage and he says, "You get out of here right now! Like you are done. You are done. You either get off the stage and get out, or I will throw you out." <laughs> and it, there's all this embarrassing antics and and uh, and just nonsense. Uh, for instance, not to give too much away, but he does this thing where he says, "Okay, I want everybody to close your eyes, bow your heads." <clears throat> And he starts praying about, you know, some of you have impure thoughts and, uh, and you struggle with that. And so, you know, what I want you to do is just stand up. You know, nobody's looking around. I want you to stand up if you struggle with impure thoughts. And so then, you know, a couple of teenage boys, they kind of shift in their seats and then they stand up and they kind of like look around, you know, like inconspicuously, but you can tell that they're looking around to see who else st- stood up, if they're the only one who stood up. And then Ignatius is like, all right, now I want everybody else to open your eyes. And these guys, these guys are struggling with some probably really dark thoughts. You need to help them out and all this kind of stuff. And it's just like, what in the world? And my point is, my point in, in actually sharing this with you and in this context with the whole Hunter Biden thing is a couple of things. One, what happened with Hunter Biden if he's just a very, very disturbed, troubled, and uh, it would seem from the evidence I've seen, potentially criminal and, uh, and, and very, very lost person. If his father was a United States senator for a long time, then vice president of the United States of America for eight years under Barack Obama, now is the president. And his father was more concerned about getting reelected, being thought well of, being spoken well of, having political power, having influence, making money, than he was about the soul of his own son or sons or family. Something is very rotten in that man being our representative at home and abroad. Something is very badly broken in this country in general if we are content for that to be what represents us. That when Trump was president for four years, I said it. I'll still say it. I'm going to keep on saying it. I think it's true. That's why I say it. (laughs) Trump represented America when he won the nomination for the Republican Party in 2016. I said at the time, you know, I think there are better candidates, but Trump probably does actually represent more the character of the United States of America. He's brash. He's braggadocious. He's hyperbolic. He's impulsive. He's materialistic. He has not been the most moral and upstanding of men. And he's bragged about it. And he's flaunted it publicly. And he's made himself wealthy and famous as a result of that. And that probably does, sadly, represent America. The same holds true when Joe Biden is president or vice president or an influential United States senator. And perish the thought that our youth programs, the way that we mentor our children, the way we 
teach our children about God's word and about what Christ has done for us and about the importance for our life here and our eternal life in believing in Christ, following Christ, obeying Christ, serving Christ, far be it from us to have this kind of reasoning at times. And yet, I think in far too many situations, I have seen exactly this kind of reasoning employed. And what I mean by that is a youth program is rolled out and someone is put at the fore of it who is dynamic, who is charismatic, who is funny, who is fun, who is entertaining. And the special high priority that is placed on them being entertaining eclipses how competent they are to teach what God's word says or to serve as a good example themselves of a follower of Jesus for the kids to see, ah, this is a follower of Jesus. Now, the perception is if they get a lot of kids to come in and the kids like them and the kids are having fun and a good time and they want to come back and they're excited to be there, the perception is that this person is a good example of a Christian because, hey, look, they're talking about Jesus. These kids don't get to hear about Jesus all week long in the public schools, many of them, most of them in America, but usually most of them also in many churches. And now this might be the only time all week that they hear about Jesus, that they talk about Jesus, that they pray to Jesus, that they're around a lot of other kids who similarly are willing to talk about Jesus or identify with Jesus or follow Jesus or put their trust in Jesus or want to serve Jesus. And so the most important thing, the most important thing for these kids, when we select a curriculum, when we select a plan for how we're going to teach and lead them, for selecting who is going to lead them, the most important thing is that these kids want to be here, that they keep coming back, that they are happy to be here, that they go back to their parents. I've seen that too. I've heard that too, that they go back to their parents and they say, oh, I had such a great time. Can we go to church on Sunday? If their parents are unchurched, we want to get their parents to come to church. Or if their parents are, are already going to church, we want their parents to keep coming to this church or their grandparents or their cousins or their neighbors or their what have you. And all that can be fine, legitimate, appropriate, if not the top priority, if not the eclipsing concern that drowns out all others. If there's not, and I'll, I'll put it to you this way, if there's not a guy or a whole team of leaders in the church like this older volunteer who are willing, if needs be, <laughs> to go up and haul the speaker off that stage and say, get out of here, if they start going off into heresy and false teaching and licentiousness. If there's not some of those people, well, then you will have the Ignatiuses. You will have what is a little bit of God talk mixed in with a whole lot of tomfoolery and a whole lot of entertainment and a whole lot of self-indulgence and license. And the disturbing thing is, I think part of how we get Joe Biden in the White House and Hunter Biden being this very troubled individual and the Biden family, at least allegedly, and according to the evidence we're seeing, involved in some very corrupt things. And yet 
this is the leader. The leader of that family is also the leader of the free world and the leader of the United States, so-called. I think part of how we get that is in how our churches, how Christian families for generations orient their approach to pedagogy and discipleship for their young people. Now, I'm very thankful. Let me be clear with regards to our particular church in Evans, Colorado, Summit View Community Church. Not a perfect church, not perfect people. We're not perfect people. They do a very good job with youth. They're very intentional. I would say of anywhere that we've been, I am probably most pleased with what I see at our church in Evans, Colorado, because it's fathers in in particular, some mothers, but mostly fathers who are leading discussion time with the students. We have a father, typically, who gets up on a Wednesday night, and last year it was apologetics. This year it's spiritual disciplines. They give a 15-minute talk to the students at the beginning on the topic, on the subject, and explain this principle, this truth, answer this question for the students. And then we break out into groups. We try to keep them under 10, 10 students per group with a parent in each group. And then we have discussion concerning a particular passage of God's word. We go through books of the Bible and each week we're reading that passage with the students and then we're asking questions and we're talking about what does this mean? What did we learn last week? What is this? How does that build on what we learned last week? Also, we go through overviews, some really great resources from the Bible Project, explaining the context of this or that book of the Bible, teaching the kids how to study God's word. And it's great. And can they have some fun? Can they hang out? Can they play some games? Sure. But the emphasis is placed where it ought to be. And I would love to see more of this. And I would love it if this were more of the trend across the country. I think it's been a very intentional and mindful and God-honoring endeavor here in our church that you're not looking for a additional pastor, a youth pastor per se. You might have some men who are facilitating in particular. They're taking the lead. Uh, I would call men in such circumstances, uh, probably if we're looking for a biblical title for them, deacons or elders, but nevertheless, leaders, if they're leading, if they're facilitating, if they're serving in that way, diakonos, uh, they are leading the program and they really emphasize, hey, kids, like we need to remember why we are here, what we are here for. We are not here just to have a good time, just to see each other, just to hang out with each other. We are also here to study God's word and to praise and worship God and to know Jesus and to follow Jesus and to be Jesus people who are about the things that God calls us to be about. And that's really phenomenal. That is that is so unusual in my experience. I have seen it done not that way and not prioritized so intentionally other places. But that is to say, and this is what my point really is, it's, it's not at all to just criticize and pick on and complain and leave you with uh, you know sadness. I'm not, I'm not trying to do that. But what I am trying to say is I think there's a direct cause and effect relationship between how our young people have been shepherded in many churches, how 
Christian parents have been encouraged and admonished to disciple their children on the one hand, and on the other hand, what most accurately represents the character of our country at the highest levels. And I think at all levels, from the individual home and family, all the way up to the White House, to (laughs) the United States Capitol building, to the Supreme Court building. I think at every level here, top to bottom, the result is brokenness and a lack of genuine care and genuine concern. And then in its place, instead of genuine care, genuine concern for our families, for our neighbors, for our loved ones, for the soul of our country, for our own souls, what you have is a deep-rooted cynicism and an apathy and a cold-heartedness. You know, that's one of the things that is said of the last days, that in the last days, men will not be lovers of what is good or what is true. They will be lovers of pleasure and lovers of themselves. Their hearts will grow cold. They will be, I would say, the kind who just keep on walking by when they see somebody being mugged or violently assaulted on the street or in the subway car or on the bus right across from them. They just try and not make eye contact. They try and not get involved. They try and not make it their problem. That's their definition of minding their own business is not caring at all what happens to anybody around them so long as it doesn't affect them, so long as it doesn't interrupt their plans. And that is an unacceptable state of being for the follower of Jesus. Our trust in Jesus cannot just be of the variety that has people speaking well of us. Beware when men speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. You know, this video here, this Ignatius, the ultimate youth pastor, it starts off with the the main typical student leader <laughs> needing a vacation, needing a break, wanting to step away, and then bringing in this guy who is supposed to be, you know, super knowledgeable, super authoritative, very, uh, you know, popular young guy. And he's going to talk about controversial subjects in a fun, hip, trendy way. He's going to dress cool. He's going to be a large personality, very entertaining, very engaging. And he's going to pull all kinds of stunts. But it's a con. And actually, he's not trying to get these kids to be followers of Jesus. He's trying to get them to be followers of him. Well, we don't want that. We don't want that. As Christian parents, we don't want that to be the way we're engaging our kids. And if we're putting somebody in a position of influencing our young people, we also don't want that to be the case with who we set in a position of leadership and authority and influence. But you look at an older volunteer, student volunteer, who says, you know, hey, if he gets up there and he starts preaching, who knows what, all kinds of nonsense and tomfoolery to these kids. I'm not afraid. I'm not above going up there and dragging his butt off the stage and kicking him out. And what that speaks to is a protectiveness, not just that we are going to put something out there and if it's popular, if it is entertaining, if it increases audience size, if it increases attendance, if it increases 
giving, well, then we know that it succeeded by the numbers. First and foremost, faithfulness. And if the love is genuine, if the love for God is genuine, and if the love for the church, for God's people is genuine, well, then there has to be a love for truth and there has to be a protectiveness towards the truth. Not that God needs defended, but that we ourselves are harmed and one another is harmed. Our relationships are harmed. Our lives and our testimony are harmed when we compromise with the truth. If we are taking bribes, if we are being dishonest, if we are being corrupt, we harm ourselves and one another, and we damage that relationship that we have with God and our neighbor. We're missing it. We're, we're missing what we're supposed to be about and what life is for. One final thought here, and actually it relates to something Paul Pavlik mentioned in his sermon this morning as he was talking about the nativity and the Advent season and the expectation of the coming of Christ. He brought up where in Isaiah chapter 9, the promise of a Savior being born is described. And one of the names for Jesus, and this also came up on Friday night when our biblical training group was talking about the names of God. One of the names for Jesus is Prince of Peace. We all need peace, Paul says. He explained this morning. We all need peace with God and we all need peace with one another. And do you know why peace is an ever-elusive, always seemingly out-of-reach value, goal, objective, object of desire that we're chasing? It's because we sin against God and we sin against one another. We need Jesus to be our Prince of Peace. We need him to make peace between us and God. And we need him to teach us and to equip us to have peace with one another that's genuine, that's real, that is lasting, that is substantive, that is, you know what, also self-sacrificing in some cases. In the interest of peace, sometimes you have to be willing to pay a cost. I want peace with God, and so I cannot do this thing I'm being told to do or pressured to do. I want peace with God, and so I cannot say this untrue thing I'm being pressured to say and affirm that I know to be false. Or I want peace with God, and so I must say what is true because I'm commanded by God to do so. We must obey God rather than men. Or, I want peace with my fellow man, so I must tell him the truth. I must do what is right and what is just and what is fair. I love mercy. I walk humbly with my God. But Micah 6.8 says, he has shown me, oh man, what is good. And what the Lord requires of me is to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with my God. I must do justice and not forget it. Yes, love mercy and do justice and walk humbly with your God. It would seem to me as though if we were doing that at all levels and in all spheres where God has instituted and established legitimate authority in the home, in our churches, and in the civil sphere, we would have a much more blessed life for ourselves and one another. And that's what we ought to pray for. And that's what we ought to pursue. That I think is what it means to seek peace and pursue it truth be told.
is that we are abiding in God's word and we are living in light of the reality that a good, holy, righteous, loving, almighty, all-powerful, eternal God who is unchanging, has given us the precepts of life, who has known the mind of the Lord, sure, but what he has given us is ours and we must know it and we must tell one another and encourage and admonish and remind one another, spur one another on to love and good deeds. But hey, I got to go. I got to run. That's all the time I've got for this episode. I'm actually going with my wife and our youngest to have dinner with my mother. It's been over a decade since we've gotten together like this, if ever. Actually, I don't know if we've ever gotten together quite like this going out for dinner, but we're going to hit up Nordy's in Loveland. So without further ado, I'll let you go at that. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. been listening to the garrett ashley mullet show on anchor fm for more content like what you just heard subscribe to this podcast on apple podcasts google podcasts or spotify also check out the garrett ashley mullet show.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published as always you can reach me with any comments questions complaints objections or insights at garrett ashley mullet at protonmail.com